First of all, thanks so much, and I appreciate your being here in the afternoon because uh, I realize sometimes for those of us with jet lag, we're starting to feel a wee bit fatigued. So let me go ahead and start right away and try to keep it to, to 20 minutes. Okay. Now, on August 28, 2003, the commissioners of the Peruvian Truth and Reconciliation Commission submitted their nine-volume final report to then-President Alejandro Toledo the Nation. After two years, some 17,000 testimonies, various public audiences, the commissioners had completed their task of examining the causes and consequences of the internal armed conflict that had convulsed the country during the 1980s and 90s. Now, the Peruvian TRC shared several features with the Guatemalan and the South African commissions that preceded it. That's why I think it offers us such a compelling case study, and I'm going to try to make that, uh, convince you of it as well. Unlike those first wave commissions, think about El Salvador, think about the southern cone countries in Latin America, these three commissions put gender on the table. They all claimed that they were going to be gender sensitive and they were going to look intensively at gender sensitive methods because they actively <laughs> wanted to seek out women's experiences of violence. And this focus reflected a desire to write more inclusive truths and also developments in international jurisprudence. Think about the international tribunals that had already occurred. So my book, I'm very interested not just on the legacies of political violence, which I think a lot of us study, and we have volumes, but also the legacies of these transitional justice mechanisms that are put into place to deal with the violence, which is why I thought the topic of the conference was such a compelling one. Now, I thought I had the best of both worlds because I worked with the TRC, so I worked in their office, which meant I had privy to documents and conversations and chismografia, for those of you. Uh -huh. But I also had my own research team. I had some autonomous funding, which meant I could say things that I wanted to. But I could also make sure that we went out to communities before the TRC's mobile teams arrived. I was extremely interested in knowing what people talked about as they prepared for these folks to come into their communities. What kind of agreements were reached about who would speak and speak about what. I was interested then in watching the mobile teams and how they worked, so I would hang out to watch that. But then also staying around afterwards to find out what did people think they just participated in? What did you think about those folks and the questions they asked? And who received threats for having spoken and who did not? Perhaps we'll get to some of that. So I thought I was very lucky in that regard, the two world factor. So my book is, um, is a work in progress. The title this week is uh, Speaking of Silences, yeah, and it could change. But I really want to think here out loud with you today a little bit about what constitutes gender-sensitive research strategies and how commissions, truth commissions, but broader transitional justice mechanisms as well, have incorporated these strategies into their work and into the reparations programs they advocate especially with regard to sexual and gender-based violence. So I have, in my work that I have already written, I have tried very hard to convince people that truth and memory are indeed profoundly gendered, but not necessarily in some of the commonsensical ways. So I would like then, um, first to always say, I'm going to take this off, excuse me, there, okay. It is rather tropical here, isn't it? I wasn't expected in Jolly Oxford. Um, I'm, whenever I critique the commission, I always have to start by saying this. I'm a member of the loyal opposition. I think it was an extremely well done commission in many ways, and I think the final report's important, and I was proud to work with them. But I also think we need to look at the vagaries of gender across the work of the commission, across the recommendations for reparations, what happens when recommendations turn into law, and what happens when reparations are implemented as a way of understanding then 
the ways in which gender has fluctuated in terms of its importance and salience across the life of this commission and its aftermath. So let me begin with a memory of my own. Now in the town of Ajomarca, they told us about a young woman, Eulogia, and for the Spanish speakers, it's very poignant. That is her name. I didn't give her that. It means eulogy, so it's a very powerful name. A young woman who died long before we arrived, but who continues to appear in the memories of various women we spoke with. Eulogia was mute, and she lived during the time when the military base sat up on the hill overlooking her village. The soldiers came down from the base at night, entering the house Eulogia shared with her grandmother. They stood in line to rape her, taking advantage of her inability to verbally express her pain. Her female neighbors told us with a mixture of compassion and some shame, we couldn't do anything. We knew what they were doing, but we were afraid they'd start visiting us as well. So they listened to her at night along with her grandmother who sat across the room, unable to protect her granddaughter. Eulogia's muffled, guttural sounds still resonate in her neighbor's ears. We knew by the sounds. We all knew what the soldiers were doing. We just couldn't say anything. So the soldiers succeeded in depriving everyone of their capacity for speech. There are two versions of how this young woman died. Some people insisted that she had stumbled, walking down a steep cliff when she was pasturing her animals. Others insisted she'd thrown herself from those cliffs. Now, Elaine Scarry has famously argued that pain and torture seek to unmake the world and to rob a human being of their capacity to speak and to make sense, one that we can share with other human beings. So this young woman could not resort to language. She could not put words to her pain, and she certainly could not denounce injustice. So she's continued to appear in my memories over the years as such a powerful um, image of this young woman screaming with all her might but not able to say a thing, which seems like a good introduction into the theme of silences. Because when people talk about sexual violence, they talk a whole lot about silences. I want to explore some of them as a way of dealing with the theme of the conference, which is ways of knowing after atrocity. What do you do with silences? How do you listen to them? How do you interpret them? How do you determine when they really are oppressive, when they may constitute some kind of form of agency? We saw some of that this morning. How do you understand silences in the way that they contour the archives? So that's the subject of lots of concern and debate, and we aren't going to settle it here today, I'm sure, but we can at least think about it. And certainly if there's a theme that's capable of imposing silence, it's sexual violence. Women and men have many reasons to hide that they've been raped, and with justice a distant horizon at best, they have very few reasons to speak about a stigmatizing experience. So I think we all know rape can be a strategy of war, so I won't rehearse that one for you. I don't want to really repeat a bunch of stuff you know. Here's some of the things I would like to talk about. And this is my ambitious plan that will be scaled back as the reality of time uh, and starts to weigh upon me. I'm very interested in the ways in which women spoke about sexual violence outside the victim-centered space of a transitional justice process, in this case, the Truth Commission. Right? I'm very interested in the kinds of stories they produced about all sorts of gender-based violence, of which sexual violence is one subgroup. Right? when they were outside of producing the victim testimony that truth commissions seek. People do not appear before truth commissions to talk about how well their lives have gone. It's not part of the logic of it. Women outside of that space tell much more complicated stories about war and its effects and about the multiple roles they assume during the armed conflict and aftermath. Their narratives are thick description in the best anthropological sense of the term. And one of the things that we'll see, and I'm going to ever so quickly sum up some of the, the, the stories that women told, is they give us a much more complicated notion 
of what constitutes violation and harm. Over and over again, they are going to come back around to ethnic insults, to social and economic rights, to cultural rights. Over and over again, we're going to see in the hierarchy of harms they constructed about their own lives, you cannot reduce that to bodily integrity and the violation thereof. What we're going to see is women insist on a much broader range, a much diffuse range of harms, and they give us a more robust sense of gender and justice and the limitations of rights and remedies. If I have time, I'm then going to talk about rape between men and women, but also between men, because there was a whole lot of it, and it was a form of establishing relations of power and blood brothers at the nexus of gender, ethnicity, and social class. So I hope, even if I have to skip through it and can only say a few words about it, I really want to talk about men, both as perpetrators but also as victims of sexual violence. I think that is one of the thoroughly understudied areas, that and children who are the product of rape. Maybe I'll say more about that. And then I'll conclude by considering some of the legacies of the massive sexual and gender-based violence that characterized Peru's internal armed conflict, reflecting on the possibility of reparations in the aftermath of great harm. Now, I worked in Ayacucho, sort of above and to the right of Phil's head. It's not always that way on all maps, but it is on mine. Okay, I don't have time to go into... Do you know much about the Peruvian TRC? Okay, I'm going to be very quick because the time just evaporates when you get up here. Um, they were charged with examining from the 1980s to the year 2000. So it was a 20-year mandate, right? It was under investigation. And what you had was an internal armed conflict between the Peruvian armed forces, the Shining Path guerrilla movement, there was another guerrilla movement, the MRTA, of lesser importance, certainly in terms of who was committing violence, who captured the international, imaginary, and the national, and armed peasant patrollers. And I stress this, this was not entre los fuegos, between two fires, which was, has had a tenacious hold on, on the ways people narrate conflicts in Latin American contexts. This was not between two fires. There were many other fires going on. You did not have a passive civilian population looking at the bullets flying overhead. And when we begin to look at responsibility for the almost 70,000 people that were killed or disappeared, what you find is the majority were killed by Shining Path. Who were Shining Path? Many of them were peasants. So very important to understand a high level of civilian participation. One of the things that we're going to hear over and over in each of the talks, it matters not only what kind of violence people suffered, but what did they practice? What did people do to each other? And what are the legacies of that kind of violence in the lives of individuals and communities? Now, had the commission done nothing other than generate that statistic, 69,280, I would have said it was a worthwhile endeavor. Right? They did many other things, but that alone would have made me think that they'd done something very important. Prior to the Truth Commission, if you'd asked any of us working in human rights how many were killed in Peru, the worst case scenario, somebody might have said about 30,000. Right? There was a massive undocumentation and why. It has everything to do with the demographics of the dead and the disappeared in Peru. Right? Three out of every four victims lived in a rural area. They spoke some language other than Spanish as their native tongue, overwhelmingly Quechua or Shanika. They tended not to have even finished primary school. They were the darker-skinned people that bear the brunt of many wars in this world. So that you had people who, at the national level, had counted for very little in their lives, and they went largely unaccounted for in their deaths. So you had 17,000 testimonies. At the national level, women gave 54% of them. 
In Ayacucho, they gave 64%. Now, I mentioned that this was a gender-sensitive commission, so let me say a few words about what, I mean, what they meant by that, as I finally got it, what they meant by it. I started to watch how they worked, and I started also to read the literature about commissions. So first we see that there was a real concern that women don't talk. And if you look at some of the earlier work, women don't talk, you need to get them to talk. Well, then you start to realize that they actually do talk. They come forward in a lot of the commissions, they give the majority of the testimonies. So you see a shift in concern. Well, they don't talk about themselves. So women don't talk about themselves, so we need gender-sensitive strategies to get them to talk about themselves, and getting them to talk about themselves is understood to get them to talk in the first person about rape. That is the emblematic prized narrative of war. Right? The emblematic wounding of women is rape. And so these, these massive endeavors to get them to produce first-person testimony. You can also look at Fiona Ross's compelling work on this in South Africa. Right. Going back to some of the interesting points this morning about how we sort of lead people to answer certain kinds of questions. Right? And she has some powerful examples of the ways in which women who had come before the commission, perhaps to talk about a history, clear their history, they'd been you know, leaders of their um, township, instead were asked, have you been raped? Can you tell me more about being raped? I mean, they were just at the coaching. That's the prized testimony. So I watched as the commission sent the mobile teams, and they tried very hard to get women to talk about themselves. Well, they gave the majority of testimonies. So how many rapes do you suppose are reported in the first person for a 20-year period? This is the audience participation portion. <laughs> you can tell that I'm a professor. I'll just yeah, stare yeah. at you until you answer. I can stare you down. <laughs> how many? Just about right, right? 538. Okay. Now we all know statistics take on a life of their own. That's why this statistic is so troubling. If you were then subsequently President um, Garcia, you loved that statistic far more than your approval rating. That's for sure, because that statistic would lead you to believe that really the armed forces were a gentlemanly lot. They'd behave themselves very well. It's a country in which you have all sorts of social unrest now, so you can go ahead and send out the troops because, after all, they didn't do anything very awful the last time around. This statistic took on a very perturbing life of its own. Now, I've worked for a long time in Ayacucho, talking to lots and lots of people, and I know that gentlemanly isn't the way to explain that statistic, and you're all sophisticated enough to know it isn't either. I care a lot about this and about thinking of the other um, ways we can explain it because we all know wars are fought but they're also told. Right? Heroes get things, former combatants get things. I work a lot with former combatants in Colombia, the DDR programs. If you are a former combatant, if you are a hero in particular, right, you get things, you get stipends, you get GI bills if you were in the United States of my dad's generation, maybe you get health care. Maybe you have streets named after you. Maybe you walk around with your head held high because people like you. Right? They think well of you. They don't name streets after rape victims. And they don't rape. That's just not the way it happens. So when we begin to look at the ways that wars are narrated, it has very real political effects. This, this stunned me. I'm going to run out of time, but that's like... Um, this just stunned me when this came out. It came out in 2007. And there was a huge controversy. And Piero Quijano is an artist, and this is the nation and its heroes, I think you, you know. And when it came out, he was just getting ready to have an exposition of his um, various artwork in the National Institute of Culture. 
And the military came out and said, you absolutely cannot show that. It's a disgrace. Look at what you're doing. You're besmirching the armed forces. What I found fascinating is an entire debate about whether or not this should be censored, and ultimately it was. Nobody ever noticed the pronounced gender dynamics of this, right? I thought, so not only, I mean, women aren't even victims in this one. Usually at least they'd be the trampled individual at the bottom. Now this, so evidently, this war was all about men. Now someone has also pointed out a very interesting thing. It's also profoundly phallic. It also looks like an earlier very, very famous war image, doesn't it? Which one was that? Iwo Jima. So it's very, very interesting. But again, I just think one of the things, gender didn't seem to be the thing that people noticed about it. Now, should I talk a little bit about this stuff? It's ways of knowing. Because um, I'm going to have to skip a lot of things, but I'll, I'm going to try to get to some of this. Now, we have here, I juxtapose these two because I think they capture different moments in time in terms of how we think about sexual violence. And the first one is the classic salvo from Susan Brown Miller in 1975, Against Our Will. And I refer to this, you can read it yourself, but I refer to it as the transhistorical male rapist. Right? So there's sort of you know, this idea that since the dawn of time men have been raping women. Well, kind of, sort of, but that's not particularly helpful in terms of specificity. So there's a whole new wave of research that's being done now, and I think Libby Wood at Yale is one of the people who influences so many of us. Rape is not inevitable in war. And she really takes on the inevitability argument. It's important why variation matters. And you see massive variation. And as she demonstrates compellingly in her work, you can have within repertoires of violence, so that broader taking up Charles Tilley's ideas, but the repertoire of violence, you might see the usual cast of hideous characters, the disemboweling, the beheadings, and things of this sort, and very low rates of sexual violence. And conversely, they do not co-vary. You may find within one armed conflict that one group uses horrific forms of sexual violence and another group doesn't. Yeah, I have five minutes, okay. And why does it matter so much? Well, I hope that it's clear, but recognizing variation. Right? One, what are the factors that inhibit it? If you do have chain of command, right, can you get the guys to behave? Or do you have an official who's telling them, go out, they're doing the same thing to your woman, go get them, which is what happened a lot in Peru, by the way. Do you have religious taboos? We don't touch their women. Do you have perhaps pollution taboos? We don't touch the women at Dirty's Us. So there's different things that can inhibit sexual violence and certain things that encourage it. We certainly have stronger grounds for holding perpetrators accountable if we can get beyond that since the dawn of time men have been raping women, which is not. The inevitability argument doesn't help us very much. And it also, I would add, is a very troubling take on male sexuality. But that's a conversation for another time. Now, I don't, I have, I have five minutes, and I'm on page three. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Um, I had a lot of coffee and thought I could do it. Let me just say a couple things then. I mentioned to you before some of the things that women talked about and why I thought it was so important. And I suppose if I could say one takeaway, it's when women began to narrate, right, they talked a whole lot about how hard they fought. Mm -hmm. They taught about how they talked about how they protected their family members. They talked about how I told the soldiers, yes, with me, but you're not touching my daughters unless you slit my throat. They talked about walking up to the military bases because their sons, their husbands, people they loved were being detained. And when they got up there, they understood what was going to happen to them. They went up anyway because they wanted their kids back or their husbands. There was a lot of bartering sex to get back loved ones or if they were already killed to find out where the bodies had been dumped. 
There were strategic pregnancies. That's what I call it. There are women who tell you flat out, I did not want to get pregnant by those filthy dogs lining up for rape, the soldiers. So I got pregnant by my next door neighbor. I was going to know who the father was. So you had women preemptively deciding to get pregnant. Part of what I want you to understand here is within a realm of really bad choices, women still tried to make the least worst choice, if you can say that grammatically. And sometimes the only range of control would be at least getting pregnant by someone in the community, so you had someone against whom to press your claims, and you could bring that child in to communal networks of responsibility. I don't have to, so, well, okay. I don't have time to do that. What I'm trying to get at here and I guess I'll just sum it up with this. I said at the beginning that I think that part of the problem with reparations is that they're based on the fact that where there's a right, there's a remedy. Frequently, rights are every bit as sexist as you can imagine. Many systems of rights include a very masculinist bias that systematically fails to capture the experiences of women. Now, as you know, feminist legal theorists have been critiquing liberal legalism for a very, very long time that default social contract-seeking rational person who engages in consent, et cetera, et cetera, is a male default position. And frequently what we're going to find as you look at women's very finely tuned descriptions of war is that the rights don't capture it. It's a problem of capture. There's no right not to be a widow. And yet that may mark you in very powerful ways. That may be the most profound harm. The most profound harm may be seeing your children killed in front of you. The point being that we really need to think then about the hierarchies women construct. So as you look at ways of knowing atrocity, part of it is to listen to the ways that women fold the violence into the stories that they tell about themselves in ways that may challenge us to rethink what we know about reparations and remedies. Right. I'll end with one example of the ways in which gender just kind of fluctuates across things in ways we might not even be aware of. And I call it, the, the, that section of the book is called The Long Way Round. And I'll just give you an example of it. It was really striking to me. Because I tried to think, okay, how do you explain this to somebody as a daily kind of burden? So in one of the places I lived for a long time, there was a lake up high. And they would tube the water right down to the center of the community. And you would go and get water. Overwhelming the people who get water are women, girls, and little boys. Okay, and it's it's a lot of work. You're carrying these huge buckets. It's not a, a joyful task. Plus, it's freezing cold, so water is not your favorite thing. But at some point in one of these communities, the tube broke. Right? Well, this wasn't a communal priority. Communal priority. We should always think exactly who speaks on behalf of community. The men didn't care that much. They're out patrolling. Right? They're out playing soccer. They're doing a lot of things. They don't get the water. So what happens? Okay, so the tube breaks off. So now to get water, you've got to climb up this very steep hill. It takes you about 15 minutes. But then there's another complication. The military comes and installs the base right here. Right? So now not only do you have to walk up the hill, but you have to walk past the soldiers. And they love to harass you because it's just fun. So the women don't want to walk by. They don't want their daughters to walk by. So the women figure another way to go the long way around. You go out around here and back up and you can go and get the water. It no longer takes 15 minutes, it takes 30. 15 up and back versus 30 up and back. Hmm? And you might think you go faster downhill, you don't, and you spill all your water all over the ground. It's a tricky proposition, I've done it myself. So what I'm getting at, the boys may still do the 15 minutes up and down. 
So how do you begin to calculate the amount of time that takes every single day and the labor that falls precisely on those people who fall at the bottom of the protein hierarchy? There's a protein hierarchy in the families, particularly families that are poor and in times of war. First you feed the able-bodied men. Then you feed the adolescent men. Then you feed the women. Right? Then you feed, sometimes, the livestock. Depends upon whether or not you still have any. And then you might feed the young girls. And you might feed the babies last. Right? So the price of the people who are the most undernourished in these particular families now have this extraordinarily extra output on a daily basis. And how do you begin to understand and capture those kinds of experiences? Um, and that's part of what I think in terms of ways of knowing and how we can begin to ask different questions. I'm going to stop there on my time. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Kimberly. Thank you.